0: Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. Well, what a a difference a week makes. And I want to to say if you're here as a guest, that this is not a normal Sunday message because uh, it's probably more... Likely to be uh, what I would call a testimony than a <clears throat> than a sermon, but it's a te- but it's a it's a living sermon. And um, if you're here with us as a guest, I'm going to give a testimony of a trip to Ecuador, which I normally would have thought I'd be given on a Sunday night and just kind of talking about some of the things we accomplished, but. Uh, if things didn 't turn out the way we had originally planned, and while we were there the the country of Ecuador went into as Kevin said a, a major uh, crisis unexpected crisis and so I want to give a testimony of what happened and how God divinely answered uh, your prayers to get us home safely and so uh, i 've entitled the testimony one way home. And let me just, uh, I just want to really start by saying something. I'm very concerned that this is going to deter you from going on a short-term mission trip. Because when I came here as your pastor, one of the things God really had laid on my heart is that we as a church need to be involved in international missions on short-term mission trips where our people are going overseas in some capacity to reach unreached people. And I don't want this to stop us from doing that. I feel, uh, to be honest with you, I feel like uh, I, I was thinking about it this morning. I feel like I'm a skydiving instructor trying to give, get you to go skydiving, and I'm going to, as a way to encourage you to go skydiving, I'm going to tell you about the trip that where the I went skydiving and the chute almost didn't open and we almost crashed. And so, I feel like it's not a very good uh, testimony about the, the importance of short-term missions, but I'm still committed for us to try. To ask God to let us be involved and be a church that's a global impact church. And that means for us not to let this to stop us. If God is, if God is calling you to go on a short-term mission, a trip, then it becomes available for us to do that in the future. I, I, I want you to, to trust in the Lord's control because part of what my testimony is this morning is God is on his throne and that when God is for you, nobody can be against you. And so I want to uh, encourage you Not to be discouraged to go somewhere. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is the safest place in the world is the center of God's will. So if God is calling you to do something, I mean, you know, the the world we live in is a dangerous place. It's a fallen world and we could be injured or we could be um, killed in Tuscaloosa. And you see that every day. So let's not let this discourage us from doing what God has called you to do. And so, you know, I, it should be a celebration of God's sovereignty and a celebration of, of the answered prayers that God does. And that's, that's my testimony. My testimony is that God answered your prayers. And God is in the business of answering prayers. And so if you today are in need of an answered prayer, take courage. That's the testimony, that God hears and answers prayers. And so here's basically what happened. About five years ago, I, and just walking through the story as quickly as possible, I really began, began to have a burden to help pastors that were living in third world countries that did not have access to seminary training. And I I have felt my seminary training has been invaluable to me and it has helped me tremendously to understand how to preach and teach and to be a pastor. And i really felt a heart for men who knew God had called them to preach but they didn't have access either uh, through the Internet or in person to get good, sound, theological, orthodox theological training uh, in a seminary setting. And so I began to investigate different ways that I could be involved in. There's a lot of organizations that are doing this type of thing, where pastors are going to third world countries and teaching pastors. And I originally had looked. I went to an IMB conference in Atlanta about two years ago, and I looked at the opportunity to go to China. There were they were looking. There was a need for pastors to go to China. But, to be honest with you, um, even at the time, we were going to sneak in there to China and really as tourists, but trained pastors in secret churches. And then, in just the last couple of years, things have really deteriorated in China. The Chinese church is under tremendous persecution, and basically um, the the people that were running that organization, they who are really, really bold, they said it's just not safe for you, for anybody, for a pastor to go to China to train pastors. And so uh, about that time, my son, who's in seminary at Louis, in Louisville, Kentucky, at Southern Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he's you know there and has been for a while, he got an uh, opportunity to go to Ecuador a year ago and to do what we're talking about through an organization called Reaching and Teaching that had established a seminary in the mountains of Ecuador in a very rural setting, where pastors from that area could come and they're actually walking through systematically learning sort of a crash course in seminary training and so, my son is Forrest. Forrest had gone there a year ago, had a great experience, went with a bunch of professors from Southern Seminary and so he you know, was going to go back this year and they had an opening on the team and it was just something that even when i was still at Shiloh, i had been uh, you know praying about it. and so i had already planned when i came here it was already on the books for me to go there and so that's how i ended up joining and it was a group of students all the stu- all the people on the team this year were uh, students many of them were pursuing phd's uh, like my son is and they so they were advanced students in in theology uh some of them were pursuing masters of divinity and then there was, t- t- my daughter-in-law went to help cook, and then one other uh, lady went from the, the Ninth and O Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and so there was a team of eight Americans, and we were working with an American missionary there who had a wife and five children, so there was a total of 15 Americans, and we were uh, going to go to this seminary, which you'll see a picture of in a minute. And I thought, oh, this is going to be just you know, exactly what I want to do because it's Ecuador and everybody knows Ecuador is a safe place to go on a, mi- a short-term mission trip. So this will be a nice and safe mission trip. And of course that proved not to be the case because uh, we were going to be there on a, arrive on a Sunday, uh, we arrived on a Sunday morning at midnight or one o'clock in the morning and we were going to stay in through Friday of the next week and teach these Men, it was going to be 20 to 25 pastors who would come from local churches and we were going to teach them Monday through Friday and all day long in a seminary setting and then that we would leave on Friday afternoon and travel all day Saturday. I was going to get back on Saturday night, which would have been last Saturday, and then I was going to preach last Sunday here. And all that came to a crashing halt on Thursday morning because the president of Ecuador uh, out of uh, in a no notice type of setting, he announced that he was removing the government's subsidies on the gasoline and diesel fuel in the country. And so, what that means is, in Ecuador, they had for 25 or 30 years been funding the cost of gasoline, so that the government actually paid half of the cost of ga- a gallon of gas and diesel fuel, and they they subsidized the cost of fuel. So whatever the people paid was half, and then the government paid the other half. And when they he, overnight, on the, the, the night we were there, the, the week we were there, on that Wednesday night, he removed that subsidy because the, the, they basically have run out of money in Ecuador. The government is out of money, and he just said, we can't do that anymore, and it stops as of midnight. And so when he did that, the price of gasoline doubled overnight, and, and, the, and the, the cost of food doubled overnight. And so the people just said, "We're going to find a new government. A new government. We're going to have a revolt." And so uh, my testimony is that God supernaturally delivered us through the prayers of, of the, the church. And so uh, before we you know walk through how we got out, let me just um, tell you that, up until the Thursday morning, about 10 o'clock, the, everything was great. And we were effective and, you know, we did what we went to do. We we taught these pastors um systematic theology where we were just making sure they understood the doctrines of the Trinity, the doctrines of salvation, the atonement, all of the we taught about the end times uh and what the Bible teaches. It was basically as much as we could pour into them. And they actually have a formal course where they come for 12 modules. And this was only one module uh, and they, so over the course of two years, they're supposed to receive 12 modules. And the actual goal we were actually training men who are older men who are going to become, instru- we wanted them to become instructors. So we were training them to be instructors in the seminary so that in the future they can teach local pastors and create and not need Americans to come in, but instead we we're trying to get them self reliant so that they can run their own seminary. In the future, in the mountains of Ecuador, and um, a lot of the men we were teaching were you know my age or older, and they 'd been pastors for twenty and thirty and forty years, so we were teaching them how to teach theology and of course we 're having to work through a translator these These people were actually not um, like hispanic they're they 're Native Americans, and they they are very their ancestors were the people. That were there, and the, the Incan Empire conquered their ancestors. They're called the Quechua people. And the Quechua um, they speak their own language. They speak Spanish as a second language, so they're they're learning through a second language, and we're speaking to them through a Spanish interpreter. And they don't speak a lick of English but their native language is quechua and they're all very small people They're I was like for the first time in my life I felt you know like I was the, the tall person and my you know my whole life I wanted to be tall I probably told you that before and for the first time in my life I was on the back row of the photos you know I mean I could legitimately go to the back and they weren't like hey you come down here and get in the front guy so um it was amazing though uh they're just a, a Native American people, it's like a time portal. It's like jumping through to Native American history in the United States of America. And um, Monday through Thursday morning, everything was normal. And uh, we were teaching them. And at 10 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, um, I was working on a sermon. I got asked to do a child dedication sermon. Uh, We had a, a local. Family that wanted to dedicate their child, which it turned out to be like a major ordeal for them. Child or, or, uh, dedication is, is is huge, and it was considered to be a great honor that I would be asked to preach that sermon. And so it was going to be a Friday sermon. But right before we left, and I was working on that sermon, when uh, my daughter-in-law came in and she said, "We're having an emergency meeting in five minutes in our break room. Everybody needs to meet. Something's gone wrong." And so. We all gathered, and I'm like, "What in the world is going on?" You know. And I remember that morning getting up, and um, let me just. And I, this was a tough mission trip on me. The, the conditions were, were tough. It was um, 11,000 feet above sea level where we were at in the in the mountains. And so uh, the air is really thin. And just from the time I'd gotten there, I had been really uh, tired. No, Noel and I left our house in Malville. At, uh, two, at, we, le- I got up at 12.30, we left at two, I got to the airport in at Birmingham at four, we got lost going to uh, Birmingham through all that traffic, and, I mean, I felt bad all day on Saturday, and then when we finally got to the, uh, Ecuador, it was like eight o'clock at night, and we had to drive four hours to the seminary, and so we got to the seminary at one o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and so I, you know, the whole week I was kind of uh, already tired, and then the altitude actually was pretty rough, and I felt bad for several days. So um, I was, I was thinking, hey, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to going home already. Uh, I mean, it was tough. The, uh, it was cold, it was damp. It's about 40 degrees. We were in the clouds the whole time. You'd think it would be a beautiful setting, which you could, it would be if you could see. But the first day it was clear, and my son was like. Y'all need to take pictures today because this would be the last time you see the sun. And he was right; the sun, the clouds rolled in. They, those people live in the clouds, and it's really kind of demoralizing. I would, I'd be like, "Hey, let's go to the coast. You know, let's let's bail out." If I was them, but um, it's very um, cloudy, misty all the time. It's like living in a fog. And so uh, the beds we slept on, they 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 hurt my back. I mean, it was again. This is the sales pitch for you to go on a short-term mission trip, <laughs> and um, I mean, in the food, it, we were living on their food pretty, pretty much. Uh, breakfast was you get you get two hard-boiled eggs, but one was enough for me, and and I say that because I mean, and that was kind of the go-to diet for them was eggs. Um, my cholesterol level probably you know doubled while I was there, but uh, we had an egg for breakfast, a roll. And a banana. And then lunch was rice, a few potatoes. They have over 200 varieties of potatoes they grow and eat in Ecuador. So this is a potato-based diet they eat on. But they also import a lot of rice because it's cheap. So it was rice, potatoes, and a piece of chicken every day. And then same thing for supper, rice, potato, piece of chicken. And we would sneak to our rooms and eat a piece of beef jerky, you know, to kind of get a little bit of beef in your diet and then occasionally, uh you'd have a piece of fruit. Somebody would bring an orange or something like that. So needless to say, but I, I remember Thursday morning, I, I woke up and I said, you know, I was kind of on a high because I thought if I could just make it through one more night. And, and by the way, what is the deal with men snoring? I mean, if I there's six men in a bunkhouse. And all of us, I mean, as, as soon as they all went to sleep, all six guys are snoring. So, you you know, it's... Uh, six guys sleeping side by side in bunk beds snoring and I was looking forward to coming home already and I was looking forward to, uh, wrapping it up. And we had this emergency meeting called and the missionary walked in and he said, there's been a, um, the the president removed the subsidies on the fuel and there's been a national strike. The people have just decided they're going to strike. And all of the transportation workers went on strike. They have a union. They all, the union went on strike first. So Thursday morning between, when he announced this on Wednesday night, by Thursday morning about eight o'clock, all, every road in Ecuador had been shut down. And what they did was they turned their buses and their dump trucks and their, um, taxis sideways in the road and they made Used vehicles to make roadblocks, and they said, you know, this is an indefinite uh, strike until the president puts the money back against the fuel cost. We're not going to remove our vehicles. And then the local people, the what are called indigenous peoples, basically the local Native American guys, they they decided they're going to join in, and they made roadblocks by just taking. They would take dirt they piled dirt across the roads as high as my head and they would usually place it in a place where there's no way you could go around because there'd be a bank or maybe across the front of a bridge where there was a choke point point. and then they cut these big trees down that are uh, next to the road eucalyptus trees and they would sl- uh, cut those down and they piled them up on top of the dirt pile so there was a, basically a pile of debris higher than my head of trees and then their favorite thing to do is to take tires and set the tires on top of the pile and just burn the tires to create sort of smoke and havoc and they were creating roadblocks and I know this is really hard to understand this is what we could not understand the people there shut the roads down at the cost of starving out people that needed food it was the most selfish thing I've ever seen in my life I've never seen selfishness like this But they actually said we would rather starve our own people than we would um, pay more for gasoline. And quite frankly, they're living hand-to-mouth, so they don't have the money. So when you talk about a person who's making $500 a year and all of a sudden the cost of everything doubles, that means their families are not going to be able to be provided for. And they're, they're essentially desperate. And they were willing to shut the roads down and say... The people that are that are people that need food, um, they weren't thinking about Americans because we were, you know, just they weren't. We weren't on their radar scope at all. But they were saying we're we're willing to sacrifice our own people, even to the, the point that if they won't be able to survive, if it means the government will have to again subsidize the fuel costs. So we went, and when this happened, the very first thing we did was we went to the local pastors. There was a lady, uh, one of the senior pastors there, his name was Felix. His 40-year-old daughter was working in the kitchen. She was in charge of the kitchen, and her name was Carmen. And uh, we were able to to speak with her through a translator. And actually, my daughter-in-law, Anna, was speaking to her, and she said, has this ever happened before? And Carmen said, this happened in 1999. And Anna said, well, how long did it last? And she said it lasted six weeks. And Carmen said it got really serious up here. And she said there were a lot of people in these hills that were starving to death and even a few that actually did starve to death because they couldn't get food. And when my daughter-in-law, Anna, heard that, to be honest with you, it really, really upset her, which upset me. And it was upset us all. So we're thinking now... That this could last, the last time this happened, it lasted six weeks. And so now, instead of going home, we know, and they told us, you're not going home on uh, the normal plane. You're not going to make it home. So we just need to start making plans to be here indefinitely at the seminary. And so the, again, the, the, bit, the problem, we were actually safe at the seminary. We had, um, things, to in terms of water, we could have boiled water, but what we didn't have was food. And when we went to the stores, the stores everybody had already hit the stores, and the stores didn't have any more rice or beans, or and we didn't have any food. The only thing we had were the chickens that the seminary owned, and so that's been kind of the joke. You know, they told us, well, we're going to have to live on the boiled eggs. We're going to have the eggs from these like." Just a small group of chickens, and so the the problem was food. We just didn't have any food. We had 15 Americans. We had seven pastors that were not going to be able to leave because they they couldn't walk home. They lived too far away. They were having to ride on a bus. So we had 22 people we were going to feed on just a handful of chickens. And people have asked me, "Did your military training kind of help?" And here's what my military training taught me. When I went I went to survival training. Uh, in the state of Washington, and, and it was kind of like cold and mountainous like that. And our instructor, the very first thing he said was, by definition, a survival situation is going to be miserable. And he said, if you're not miserable, you're camping. And so um, you know, he said, and so that was what was ringing in my head. I could still hear that, you know, the NCO saying, by definition, a survival situation. And we stayed five days in the woods with very limited food, and it was miserable. And so the thought of living for six weeks uh, on boiled eggs, you know, and I was very, I was very upset because I'm thinking, this, you know, and you know, you're supposed to be the pastor. I was the pastor of the trip, so you're supposed to be the guy that's, you know, at peace and encouraging and all those other people. And I'm remembering how painful five days of survival training was. When we did have some food and some power bars and things like that, when I was in the Air Force, and realizing this is going to be really miserable. And um, so, um, having said you know all that, let me let me show you some pictures at this time and kind of tell you what happened. Um, I think we've got some pictures here. This is the seminary. And so it basically was a church that they had you were also using as a seminary, and it was really a nice facility as you know it was uh in terms of instruction. that was good. Go ahead. uh These are the pastors we taught, and this was just a group picture. We gave them all a blue cap. Um, we all had the same cap on um, and I, I' I'm me and Forrester over here on the far left up here. But these guys were just pastors of local churches, and uh, you know, just like myself. And that's our classroom, which is also the sanctuary of the church, and they just were in there, and it was it was a, we weren't doing evangelism. we were doing classroom instruction. Go ahead. So it, uh, that's looking out from the front of the seminary, just looking out at the countryside. It was rural, it was farms, chickens, cows, pigs. But again, these were dairy cows, so we could not have slaughtered them. They didn't belong to the seminary. They were um, subsistence farmers. Those people up there are poor. They live on what they they can produce, and their main income is is milk for the cities. They're dairy farmers, and they milk their cows every day, just like in the 1800s in America. Go ahead. Uh, it, it was in the clouds. It was gloomy. So even in the daytime... And by the way, that last picture was kind of an exception. It was more gloomy and cloudy. This is just me preparing a teaching lesson in the middle of the day, having to use a headlamp. Go ahead, in our workroom. And this is me teaching through an interpreter. That student, by the way, goes to Southern Seminary, and he was not even planned to go on um, as an interpreter. He is from Venezuela. He has a desire to be an IMB missionary. And this was a God thing. And I'm going to tell you, when you're in a crisis, God will work things out for you. That's a, that's a take home. That guy, yeah, guy was from Venezuela. He spoke fluent Spanish. when everything went down, our missionary had to spend most of his time trying to figure out a way to get us out. And so this guy took over the job of interpreting. But he also was with us when the when the missionary couldn't be. And, I mean, we couldn't speak Spanish. so And, and without him... We would have been in dire straits, but this is just again me teaching. You can see it's cold; it's probably forty degrees inside the room there. And we're just teaching theology to make sure they're what they're teaching is is right to their congregations. Go ahead, and uh, just a few of the guys. That's our classroom. They're singing there. They were very musical. They pl- and they played a guitar, a drum, and an accordion. And they would, they'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and start singing. And at night, they would sing until 9, 10 o'clock at night. And I don't ever want to hear another accordion in my life. <laughs> I pray we don't have accordions in heaven. So, <laughs> uh, seminary, that's, that's what I did. I, that's the American missionary there that is uh, interpreting for me. So I would have to say a, a phrase. And those men are taking notes. They were faithfully. We're talking about just, uh, just like you would if you were going to seminary there and teaching them. Go ahead. That's a, again a picture of some of the local guys. Those are Native American, American. I mean, Native American Christians, our brothers in Christ, and uh, passionate Christians. And, and 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 that's not a very safe place, by the way, to be a, a Christian. They do face some persecution there. They, they face some persecution from the Catholic Church, but also just Uh, from the government as well. Keep going. And uh, that's Carmen, that was the one that said that local people, and she's making a, she'd go out and cut grass, and she made a tea that was a medicinal tea by cutting that grass. All that grass would be boiled down to some sort of a tea, which I didn't drink, but uh, (laughs) it was supposed to make you feel better. And then keep going. I think there's just just the lady walking down the road. Everywhere they went, the very colorful dress. Well, sporting some attire that I brought home. That's kind of the pretty, prettiness of it. Go ahead. And that's the the bunk bed of death there, and, and, and then the chiropractor's best friend there. It looks good. The mattress the mattress was like that thick, but as you laid down on it, it compressed about that. It was it was not a good setting. So um, that's the child dedication service preaching there, and I think the next picture go ahead is the child. And I managed to put him to sleep during his child dedication (laughs) service. So hopefully I'm not doing that to anybody here. But he had a little navy uniform on. I thought that was pretty cool. And then um, that's the seminary from the outside. And. I'm going to tell a story about this dirt road in just a second right there. So uh, I was standing on that in and, and just a second, kind of facing back the other way. That's Felix, uh, the senior pastor, and he's just got a heart for pastors. He's the pastor of pastors. That bucket, by the way, behind that lady is because it rained, and then when it rained, it just poured down water, and they just, without blinking an eye, they just put buckets out everywhere and just press on, you know, with the, don't worry about the water. That guy right there, Felix, he stood about right here on me and that lady stood up. No kidding like this. And my son's a big, you know, fan of the Lord of the Rings or whatever it is, and he was like he felt like they were what are those people called? The, the 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 what are they? The hobbits, you know, or something like that. So that's our meal for the day. You don't eat the cucumber because it's not cooked. If you eat that, you'll be deathly ill. Uh that juice is not edible. It's just for looks. I don't know what it is. Um, so obviously it's a high starch diet. That's potatoes, rice, and a little piece of chicken. Go ahead. And that's my son. And we went up the very first day up into it was clear. And we rode up, my son and daughter-in-law, and kind of looking back down on where the seminary was up in the mountains. So that's uh, that. And here's just three pictures real quick of uh, on the way out as we were going out. Uh, we were passing roadblocks that had not been uh, kept going, burning. And then that one on the right is a tree where they had pulled that tree back using some rope that had been across the road. But those, that one on the left, I know it doesn't look like much, but when it was first made, it was a pile of tires as high as your head that would burn down and it had been allowed to burn down and not kept going. And so as we're going across it, it these are burning tires that uh, they're still kind of smoldering and stuff. And I'm praying, you know, a couple of them were pretty flaming up, and I was like pl- praying that the the van wouldn't explode from running across a, a fire. So let me just t- tell you how it, it, it turned out after we found out. Uh, and you can take those pictures down for me. Um, as soon as we found out, we called. I called Noelle and said, uh, you know, it, it happened to be, I knew when her prep period was at Hillcrest. I said, I need to call you, and it scared her to death. She thought something was wrong, what, like somebody broke a leg or something. And she said, yeah, I'm actually glad to know it's just a revolution. I mean, it's, so it's uh, like, <laughs> you know, it's nothing, you know, it's just just your average revolution in a third world country. But, um you know, I said, the, the, we know we're not going to make our original flight home on Saturday. Uh, and they've already told us we're not going to make that. And, sh- and so I said, I need for you to call. And Kevin, I really appreciate it. Kevin started helping us and got some information in, in th- for the U.S. Embassy and the U.S. Consulate in, in, in uh, Ecuador. And um, so and Noel ended up calling the consulate office. We were hoping that they would send somebody to come and rescue us. And so the, the guy at the U.S. consulate office, and it's, the city is called Quiaquil. It's a, there's three big cities in Ecuador. Quito, the capital, Quiaquil, which is another large city, and then a moderate sized city about the size of Tuscaloosa called Cuenca. And other than that, it's pretty much rural. And, uh, the guy that was at the embassy in Quiaquil, he told, uh, told Noel that the United States doesn't like to get involved in stuff that's, Going on just in a country that doesn't involve us, because we don't want to cause an international incident. So he said for us to shelter in place and just try to survive, and that nobody would come and rescue us unless they got orders to do so from the from quote D.C. He said unless we get orders from D.C. we won't come and rescue you. So I'm actually thanking. Uh, Two things. Number one, what is it going to take to get orders from D.C.? And number two, where could a... And and I was actually looking for a place for uh, like a Marine Chinook helicopter to come and land on the side of this mountain because, I mean, it's not going to be an airplane. And they can't... I don't think they're going to be able to bust through all these roadblocks. They said they estimated there was 50 roadblocks between us and Quiet because these guys, these local guys just said, Revolution, shut down the, the road... There was tons of roadblocks. There was one right down the road from us we could see. It was a pile of dirt. I mean, it was just right there. And the people down there, we went down there and talked to them, and they said, closed indefinitely. That's not what you want to hear. That scared me because the dirt was like this, and that guy said, closed indefinitely. And, uh, you know, in other words, we couldn't get our van out. And uh, that was just right where we were at. So I'm thinking we gotta fly out in a Chinook helicopter and um, to be honest with you, I was like looking and I was, and I called Noel on that road I was telling you about and that went, we finally finished and I was thankful when the whole thing was over with. And by the way, the child, and so I had preached a child dedication service on Friday afternoon. That was the last thing. And I made a couple of points, and what I did was I selected Luke chapter 2, which is the story of the birth of Jesus, because I thought that would correspond to the birth of a child. And in the story of the birth of Jesus, this, where it talks about in Luke 2, where Caesar Augustus had issued a decree, and then the angels announced that Jesus had been born. And I don't know if you remember but I talked about how Caesar thought he was doing something but that was really the way that God had controlled the circumstances in order for Jesus to be for Joseph to have to take Mary to Bethlehem to be born because that fulfilled a prophecy in the Old Testament. And so my point, my first point in the message was God is in control. And that God is able to use human decisions in order to bring about his will. And my second point was that God loves us because He sent a Savior to die on a cross for us. But my third point was that Jesus came to save ordinary people, just like you and me, because the shepherds were ordinary people. You know, I said, you know, He could have come and announced that the shepherds were the very first people that the announcement came to it. And it could have been to presidents, it could have been to kings, it could have been to queens, but it was shepherds that heard first the good news that there's um, a Savior who had been born who's Christ the Lord. And so my point in the sermon was that God loves and saves ordinary people like us, and that I'm ordinary, and the people that were there were ordinary, and that God had sent a Savior for common folks. And so I was standing on that road down there, and I was thinking about how we're going to get a Marine Chinook helicopter to come and land And my thought was, I talked to Noelle, and I was was a low, because I told her, and she was being really strong. This was on uh, Friday afternoon, uh, and she told me, you know, she was an angel. Let me just say, Noelle was an angel. And she was telling me, you know, pouring courage into me, and to be strong, stay there, because I wanted to go for it. I wanted to, like, let's just bust through, you know, like, lower the head and shoulders and bust through the 50 roadblocks and go for it. Because we had a flight out and I was thinking maybe we could just bust through, you know, and she's like, no, stay there, live on boiled eggs. And and I'm like, no, I'm gonna call somebody, I'm fixing to throw a duck fit and call somebody to rescue us off the side of this 11,000 foot mountain on the side of, in the clouds in Ecuador. And you know, a Marine, I could just see the Marine Chinook coming. So, I got my phone out after I talked to Noel, and I said, I'm going to go through my phone and I'm going to look through my contact list and I'm going to find somebody that can get a marine helicopter to come and rescue us off the side of this mountain. And I started going all through at my A's and B's and C's and all the way through. And you know what I found out in my phone? I don't know anybody very important. <laughs> Man, I, I'm sorry. If you're in my phone, then you can't get D.C. DC to come and rescue us. Uh, rescue us, and I, that was what I was really discouraged. I think the most important person I know is Rogers Wilson. I was like, I bet I'm like Rogers. He knows some four-star general in the Marine Corps. that can get us off the side of this mountain. And he—he he literally. I was literally thinking, could Rogers call somebody in the Marines? You know, they'd be thirty years in the Marine Corps and, and, and rescue us. And I and I realized that there was nobody that I knew that was important enough to come and rescue us, uh, uh, to rescue us. And that's when I realized the only thing I could do was pray and rely upon the prayers of the church. That's all we had. And so that's my encouragement to somebody today. You may be at a point where all you have is the, is prayer and the prayers of the church. So that's you know that's where we were at, and we had everybody praying for us. And if you you know prayed for me, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. This church prayed hard for me. I'm going to tell you something. There's prayer, and then there's prayer. And, you know, the missionary's wife was there. What happened was they decided to have a party in town for this kid, this child dedication thing, and they were going to throw a party and eat guinea pig. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to stay here. By the way, guinea pigs a big thing in, in Ecuador to eat. And so I said, I just want to stay here. I was, I was low and I was tired. This was Friday night and I was, I just wanted some quiet. Get away from this accordion music. And <laughs> so they sent a bunch of the younger people, you know, they had energy. They went off. To this town, uh, local town village, walk to it to, uh, go to this party. Um, it ended up, uh, being such that they, I was glad I didn't go because it ended up being a long way and they ended up having to drive across, and after they walked across the roadblock. But I stayed with a couple of people, the missionary's wife and her, her kids stayed. This was on Friday night. And the missionary's wife said, I said, you know, do you think there's any way we could just go through the roadblocks? And she said, if you go up to those roadblocks, they're going to slash your tires and take your tires off your vehicle and throw them on top of the, t- of the fire. And um, they were posting, we had Twitter and Internet through our phones, and they were posting pictures of uh, all these roadblocks with all these men just standing around with knives. And uh, they had knives and machetes. So basically, if they've got knives and machetes, the police don't have. The police are basically non-existent. It's it's lawless. It's every man for himself. Who's ever got the most um, power? And um, you know, I'm going to bed thinking, you know, we're going to be here for weeks. And I was just about uh, getting ready for bed on Friday night, and, uh, and I'm telling you, I was down. I really was low. And just, and, and just about the time I was getting ready to go to bed, I heard uh, one of our female ladies come running through the, the uh, hallway outside, yelling, "The strike is over! The strike is over!" And I'm like, "What? What?" I thought. And we ran out there, and what she said was um, that they had received word from our missionary, and they had, were receiving word through the um, grapevine that the strike was going to be over. But it turned out the strike was only suspended. And immediately the man, the driver called and said, Hey, we're coming to get you first thing in the morning. We're going to come at 1130, be ready to go, and we're going to get you guys back to Hill. And so I went to bed that night just elated and thankful. But also still like, you know, we didn't have a lot of good information. So we were kind of in an information um, hole. But when we woke up in the morning, and we're on a, a high now because we're thinking the guy's coming at 11.30, and so what ended up happening was um, the guy called and said, the roads are closing again. i got to come now, and I'm coming from Cuenca, and I'm coming to take you to Quack Hill to get on your... To just, I'm just going to take you to the airport and dump you out, and then you got to get a flight after that. And we were just, that's fine. Just get us to the airport, and we'll live at the airport until we get a flight home. That was the plan. And so... Uh, he was supposed to come at 11:30. He came about 10. We poured into the van and we started driving. And we're going through all these roadblocks that had not been reestablished. You could tell they they were letting us pass through them. We probably passed through about 10, and then we came to one, and, and there was um, a bunch of men standing there, and they said, "You're not coming through here." And we couldn't actually even go talk to them. We had to kind of like do it from a distance because they were really aggressive. Uh, they wouldn 't let anybody pass through, and the, the driver just said it 's not safe for us to go up there and talk to them and so He said we don 't want to do we don 't want to talk to them because they 're going to take our tires off and burn our tires and He said we just need to go to Cuenca and forget kwa and so we we were talking through that kid that kid I told you about that interpreter, so we just made a split second decision to turn the van around and we went to this other city called Cuenca, which did not have an airport that flew out of the country it had an airport. But like Tuscaloosa, it was a small airport. But that was fine. We were there. We thought everything was going to be okay. We got... Um, and here's what happened. We went to the airport, and the guy said the first flight out is Tuesday, and there's a waiting list. Get on the list. And he said, when we get 90 people, we'll call you, but don't call us. And he wouldn't give us a phone number. And they were going to make a flight from there to to Quaikil, um on Tuesday. And so... Um, We were pretty discouraged, but we got into a nice hotel. And and so uh, we thought we were just going to sit tight until Tuesday and then try to get out of the city of Cuenca to Quaquil and just get a flight home eventually. And that morning, Sunday morning, we woke up thinking, hey, we're going to just sit tight in this hotel, which is a pretty nice place, until Tuesday. And and we knocked on our door saying, you guys got to leave. You don't have reservations. You got ten minutes so I went from this emotional high, like I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm living in a hotel. To we're up back on the streets, and we were throwing our stuff in the in the suitcases. And I texted Noelle after I got that done, and then that hit me. It was it was it was nine o'clock. She was in Sunday school last Sunday, and that hit me hard. And uh, Noelle said that y'all started singing Waymaker last Sunday. And um, the missionary said, "Let's just go to the airport and see what's going on." And uh, we'd gone there yesterday, the day before, you know, and we got on a list. We went to the airport. When we got to the airport, all chaos had broken out. There were people everywhere. And there was a line, and our missionary, he just went straight to the front of the line and said, what's going on? And they said, well, we're going to have one flight out today. Ninety people can get on it, and it's going to Quack at 6 o'clock at night. And he said, well, what about the people that were on the list from yesterday? And they said, what list from yesterday? And he said, Well, I came by here yesterday. I made a list. I mean, I got on a list. The guy started rooting around. It was a different guy. The other guy wasn't even there. And he started rooting around. Sure enough, he found that list. And he said, well, we'll put these people front. And he, he said, if you'll pay right now, we'll let you go ahead and get your tickets to get on the flight. We got, And our missionary paid for us to get that flight and advocated for us to get out that afternoon. And so our flight ended up being delayed. We ended up going to Kill At uh, we got there about 9:30 at night. In the meantime, we'd made reservations to catch a flight out, and it was going to be at 11, so we weren't going to catch it. But it got delayed coming from the United States, and only by God's grace was it delayed. And so, by the time we got to Quack Hill, we had time to catch that flight, and we flew all night and got back to Miami uh, early on Monday. And so, I, you know, here's what I, here's what I was thinking about, and just in closing. Um, Psalm 22, I was thinking about this verse. and Just listen to Psalm 22, verse 11. It says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. They open the, uh, wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion, and I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. And when we cried to him, he heard us. And so I just want to... I was thinking about... The fact that, um, you know, we came out on on a road that was, and they said this is the only road that was open. By the way, that road closed within a few hours after us being on it. By the end of the day, that that road that we got to Cuenca on had already closed back and it's still closed today. The people of Cuenca are being supplied by the air. All the roads there are cut off. All the roads out of the seminary are still cut off. All the roads to the Coahuila Airport are cut off. You can't get there by, by the ground. You have to fly into the airport. And there was just one, you know, there was one road out. There was one flight out. And I thought about how our missionary, he went to the, you know, and went to Bad Force. He was our advocate. He was um, willing to pay the price necessary to get us out. And I just want to ask you today, you know, do you realize that even though we came home to Alabama, this is really not our home. Home is heaven. And there was, there's one way out of our sin. There's one way out of the... Um, there's one rescuer. There's one advocate for us, and it's the Lord Jesus. And so if you're here today, I, I want to just make sure that there's nobody here today that is um, lost, that wouldn't, would come here today and, 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 and need a Savior. I'm going to ask uh, Miss Carol if she'll just come and play some quiet music for us so we can um, have an invitation time. And Kevin, you can come and lead us, if you would. Um, you know, Just a quick closing song in a minute. But if you would just bow, and let me just ask if, if there's anyone here today that would need to um, maybe come to the Lord today as your rescuer. Let me speak to somebody here today. If you came here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, the Lord is on your side and he has a a desire to rescue you out of your sin and out of the the darkness of this world to bring us home to the the home that God wants us to be in, which is heaven. And there's one road out. Jesus said, I'm the narrow road. There's one flight out. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So today, don't leave here today because you're going to need to be rescued. If today is not the day, you don't know that we have tomorrow. You don't know that you won't uh, be in an accident or something. You might have catastrophic news in your life this week. And I'm telling you that God's on your side and God wants to rescue you eternally. If you'll just simply surrender to the Lord Jesus, trust in Him wholly and fully as your advocate who went to the cross to pay for your sins, the day you can receive rescue. And I, I want to speak to all my brothers and sisters in Christ and just give you an opportunity just to be recommitted to prayer. Prayer makes a difference. God answers prayers. And God has timing that's often not the timing that we want, but His timing is always right and perfect. So I just want to call you to trust in prayer and to know when you pray, God hears prayer and He'll answer those according to what's right and good for you if you're seeking His will. Whatever you need to do, if you need to come forward and talk to me, if you want me to lead you to the Lord, Pastor Brad's here. We can help you to do that. And if you just want to uh, spend some time in prayer at the altar, you can do that. Whatever God's laid on your heart today. We're just going to spend a few minutes before we'll be done this morning. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.